A few years back, History of the Saints began production of seven seasons of a documentary television series titled History of the Saints. Season one, Foundations of the Restoration. Season two, Joseph Smith's Kirtland. Season three, From Pentecost to Persecution, the Missouri Years. And season four, Joseph Smith's Nauvoo. Then three more seasons telling the story of Brigham Young and the Saints, beginning with the Nauvoo Exodus in 1846, titled Gathering to the West. Then Building Zion. And finally, The Kingdom Endures. Altogether, over 100 hours of Latter-day Saint pioneer history. For these and all of History of the Saints books and DVD products, visit us at historyofthesaints.org. Welcome to the History of the Saints podcast. My name is Glenn Rawson, series host. What you are about to listen to is an episode about the documentary history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This episode is one of more than 250 presentations from 1805 and the birth of Joseph Smith the Prophet through 1877 and the death of Brigham Young. This series interviews some of the finest scholars of our time and presents the latest in historical research and facts as it relates to early Latter-day Saint history. And it comes from the long-running, highly acclaimed television documentary series, History of the Saints. If you have a desire to learn the history in depth and detail, then this podcast is for you. Thank you for joining us. If he doesn't find out which of all the churches is right, he's going to be damned. And that's awful. That's an awful thought for him. Joseph Smith saw God the Father and his son, Jesus Christ, in the spring of 1820. He described the circumstances leading up to this event thus... At about the age of 12 years, he said, my mind became seriously impressed regarding the all-important concerns for my immortal soul, which led me to searching. I pondered many things in my heart, he said, concerning the situation of the world of mankind, the contentions and divisions, end of quote. This episode of History of the Saints is about that world. The world of 1820 and Joseph Smith, which led and prepared him for the first vision. I'm a believer in Joseph Smith and his testimony, and it does nothing to water down that belief to conclude that Joseph Smith is in very many ways a product of his time and place. As long as we're willing to believe that God acts in history, then we realize that this particular moment in history, this time, in American history gives us Joseph Smith. Providential history is looking back on history with 2020 hindsight to recognize that certain things that happened actually may have had a reason why they happened. And looking back, not only with the eye of faith, but also the rigor of historical reality, one can see ways in which the hand of God may well have been a part of preparing the way for extraordinary events that didn't just happen, but were prepared so that they could occur in the way that they needed to. 
If we don't have uh, a first great awakening and then a second, if we don't have a dominantly Protestant culture, but also a, a revolution that gives us a wide variety of faiths now to choose from, and if we don't have probably the economic stresses that the Smith family endures, we probably don't get a first vision in the same way we do. You don't get Joseph Smith with the right combination of concerns and questions and issues to go into the grove. It's the coming together of those internal forces and the external forces that create the environment in which Joseph Smith goes into the sacred grove. Could the first vision in 1820 have happened without the American Revolution? Revolutions in America and France radically changed the Western world. If you go back into the 18th century, the world was very stable, but they were not looking for new things. There weren't seekers that were trying to reform in the way that Joseph Smith uh, would radically transform American religion and world religion. What was in the air of 1820? What was the time like? What, uh, what were the main currents of thought that colored that time and age that may have not necessarily anticipated the Restoration, but were happening simultaneously to it and may have had enormous impact upon it as time goes on. And one of the very first things I think we'd have to look at would be the spirit of revolution in the age of 1820 and those who made that so possible and so real. The Founding Fathers, the people who drafted the Constitution, were individuals who believed in human liberty. They were in a prime position because they were somewhat unorthodox in their religious views uh, to favor liberty of conscience and liberty of thought and to enshrine those um, sentiments in, in the Bill of Rights in a way that would protect religious minorities. The American Revolution will in many ways inspire the French Revolution, but the French Revolution was a tidal wave of discontent and dissent against what was happening or what had been happening in what was called the ancient or ancien regime. The old way of doing things that had lasted in Europe for a thousand years. A medieval feudalistic order of things, which stressed three things. The monarchy, the aristocracy, and the theocracy of the church. And the great benefits of society went to those three entities or institutions, however you wish to call it. And they had put down the common man and woman for so long. And the great battle cry of egality, fraternity, liberty, and property was what was happening in France. And actually it spills over for many years into Europe. The one who captures the spirit of the 
of a French Revolution, at least at the beginning, is going to be the man that the new republic, the French Republic, will turn to to preserve itself, and that will be Napoleon Bonaparte. He's sometimes called the prince of the revolution or the son of the revolution. And his uh, efforts not only to quell revolts in France, but to expand the ideals of the revolution across Europe will have an enormous impact upon the history uh, of Europe and of the entire world. He will pass to other nations a sense of that the people rule, not the monarchy, and certainly not the church, the established church, and certainly not the aristocracy. There must be a meritocracy. There must be an opportunity for the little person to succeed and to move forward. This democratization movement, sparked by revolution, imbued the common men with its principles and affected religion as well. People began to believe that they could think for themselves, they could act for themselves, they could worship as they chose. Well, this in turn gave rise to a global renewal of Christianity and the spirit of revivalism. Before there was Napoleon, there was John Wesley and the Methodists in England, and the spirit of revivalism spread to America. At the same time, you have this democratization of American politics, where even the lowest person now is starting to get a say. At the same time, you have this democratization of religion, where the decision here isn't going to be God's. The decision here is going to be mine. And so you can see why Methodism is so attractive, especially to the lower classes of of early America, because it it provides a different type of hope. It, it, It allows someone to have control over their salvation the same way that they have control over their vote and they have control over their country. The Methodist revivals of the early 1800s are really the catalyst for much of Joseph Smith's agitation over religion. The Second Great Awakening really begins in Kentucky, Cane Ridge, about about 1801, when ministers from various religions would come together and their revivals would last four or five days in the countryside. They called repentance and to reformation was enormously significant in the lives of hundreds of thousands of Americans who were aching for a religion that would change their lives. And that's the beginning of the Second Great Awakening. The spirit of revivalism was burning hot in Palmyra when the Smiths first arrived in 1817. Joseph Smith himself said that at the age of 12, he had become concerned for his immortal soul and that he had begun to pray. And William Smith said he often prayed and he noticed that he was anxious to learn. And Joseph circulated among the various groups. We have an example in the the Baptist congregation where he attended and in a Methodist congregation. A camp meeting might last weeks. People did camp out. They enjoyed being together, and the religious religious fervor was high. And it's significant that 1820 is the 200th anniversary of the coming of the pilgrims. 
to the Plymouth Bay Colony. And you see that in the writings of many of the ministers contemporary to the Prophet Joseph Smith, that we've kind of gone astray. We need to get back to that pilgrimage that's going to change our lives like it did earlier on in America. And this is what so much of the spirit of the revivals were in the 1820s, a new Jerusalem, to find out where we once were and where we need to become and how America must change and go through that baptism of fire that's essential to its future salvation, both nationally and individually. A few years back, History of the Saints began production of seven seasons of a documentary television series titled History of the Saints. Season one, Foundations of the Restoration. Season two, Joseph Smith's Kirtland. Season three, From Pentecost to Persecution, the Missouri Years. And season four, Joseph Smith's Nauvoo. Then three more seasons telling the story of Brigham Young and the Saints, beginning with the Nauvoo Exodus in 1846, titled Gathering to the West. Then Building Zion. And finally, The Kingdom Endures. Altogether, over 100 hours of Latter-day Saint pioneer history. For these and all of History of the Saints books and DVD products, visit us at historyofthesaints.org. Joseph's investigation was more profound than most people realize, even the people that are writing about it. And if you talk about the age of 12 to 15, you're talking about the year 18 when he began. And Joseph Smith said it all began with the religious excitement in Palmyra. A couple of years pass. The family moves a couple of miles to the south. They begin clearing a 100-acre farm. So you probably have ebb and flow in Joseph Smith's concern for the welfare of his immortal soul. But as he uh, advances into his teens, he's worried. He's worried about his sins. In 1950, a non-Mormon historian, Dr. Whitney R. Cross, wrote a book about religion in Western New York in early America. In that book, Cross asserted that the spirit of revivalism burned so hot in Western New York in the early 1800s that it earned the appellation, the Burned Over District. He called it the Burned Over District as, as if these religions went through and burned it over and it would be sort of the end of interest in religion. When I was beginning to study the Latter-day Saints, I began to realize that he was wrong about the burned over district. Not that it didn't have a lot of religious enthusiasms uh, in the first half of the 19th century, but that in its burning, it created such an emphasis on religion that it would be more like the burning bush. Uh, it was much more like the burning bush, the, t- the extent to which people became exceedingly interested in religion. If he doesn't find out which of all the churches is right, he's going to be damned. And that's awful. That's an awful thought for him. It's a terrible, terrible problem for this teenage boy. And it's complicated by the fact that 
His own parents are not always in agreement. They're in agreement on the Bible's true, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, salvation comes by Jesus Christ, how to, how to get access to that salvation, that's a point on which they are not always in agreement. His mother joined the Presbyterians. His father tended to be a Universalist, and Joseph Jr. leaned towards the Methodists. Well, the Smiths were a family divided over religion. They held different opinions about which church brought salvation. And that was the situation both in the home and in the world that Joseph saw. He described it as a war of words and a tumult of opinions. So what exactly were they arguing about? Either faith comes from God alone and there's nothing you can do to merit it or get it, or you need to find out the truth about God and have a proper faith in Jesus to be saved, but both of those can't be true at the same time. It's also complicated by the Smith family's quest to find some economic security, right? They're quite restless. They've just moved a few hundred miles to find a promised land where they can actually establish their own farm and provide for their future security. So the, the insecurity, uh, both economic and spiritual, that is inescapable in the Smith home is part of the external environment. Joseph said that in process of time, his mind became somewhat partial to the Methodist sect. So, how might Methodism have influenced or taught Joseph? We know that he was exceedingly interested in the Methodist in those early, early years. And he probably learned a lot about the nature of the scriptures from the early Methodists because they were preaching from the Gospels and from the prophets. People wonder how such an unlettered person could know as much as he did, but he probably did know a great deal from listening and talking to the Methodists. I think we'd have to give full credence, wouldn't you think, to those wonderful ministers of other faiths in that burned-over district of upstate New York, Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian, and other faiths who were teaching from the Bible in a splendid way. Whether or not James 1, 4, and 5 was one of those scriptures, we'll never know. But those ministers and their assistants, male and female, were very powerful in teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ as they understood it. And I think we'd have to give full credence to the fact that perhaps Joseph Smith was taught faith by those of other faiths. In 1835, Joseph Smith dictated to Oliver Cowdery his account of what had happened to him in 1820. This account was later published in the church's newspaper, The Messenger and Advocate. He said, I, I wasn't present for the very early experiences of the prophet. And so, in effect, I had him at my elbow and telling me what was happening. And uh, Joseph Smith uh, described uh, at that time uh, to Oliver uh, that he, his, uh, he, uh, his 
sensibilities had been awakened by a man by the name of George Lane. Uh, George Lane was a right reverend gentleman uh, from uh, the Methodist uh, uh, Church. And uh, he was uh, supervising the work. He presided over what was called the Susquehanna District, but uh, had, uh, was uh, there for a revival uh, in the, the Palmyra area. And uh, on that occasion, he preached a sermon entitled, Which Church Shall I Join? And he used as his text, James 1 and 5. And uh, William said that uh, Joseph, with childlike faith, uh, concluded that he would uh, go out uh, after reading James 1 and 5 for himself and, and make inquiry. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who giveth to all men liberally and braideth not, and it shall be given him. Never did any passage of Scripture come with more power to the heart of man than this did at this time to mine. It seemed to enter with great force into every feeling of my heart. I reflected on it again and again, knowing that if any person needed wisdom from God, I did. Joseph went into the grove with the question of which church to join, but like many of God's answers, he already had tried to figure it out. And the Lord gave him the, the, the revelation that he had to give because Joseph had exhausted his earthly possibilities. The important thing about the way in which he describes going into the grove and having this first vision, or what the church has come to call it for this first vision, is it's not very different from the what the Methodists were encouraged to do, which is if when they had questions to go into a grove by themselves and pray. So in a way, this was a, a Methodist action that resulted in something very different from the Methodist answer. The Lord heard my cry in the wilderness, and while in the attitude of calling upon the Lord, a pillar of fire above the brightness of the sun at noonday come down from above and rested upon me. And I was filled with the Spirit of God, and the Lord opened the heavens upon me. I saw the Lord, and he spake unto me, saying, Joseph, my son, thy sins are forgiven thee. Go thy way, walk in my statutes, and keep my commandments. Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith's experience in the sacred grove was indeed very different than anyone else of that day. He experienced one of the greatest theophanies of all time. And when we come back, we'll talk more about the aftermath of that vision and the years that followed for Joseph. I'm Glenn Rawson, and we'll see you then. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information on what you have listened to, please go to historyofthesaints.org. The History of the Saints team that produced this podcast has also produced numerous books and full-length documentaries on early Latter-day Saint church history and the key figures that made that history. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.
This podcast of History of the Saints has been produced by Dennis Lyman and Glenn Rawson. History of the Saints is a 501c3 nonprofit organization.